just want to jump right into continuing our Open Doors series. Last week, if you weren't here last week, have to listen to that message. Go online. It's on there. Get our app. You can watch it there. But Scott said something that when I listened to it this week, it just stood out to me. And I want to start with that. Here's what he said last week. He said that Jesus is the open door to God. The church is the open door to Jesus. Jesus is the open door to God, and the church is the open door to Jesus. What a powerful vision for us as a church. What a powerful reality. That is, Jesus is the representation of God and helping us to see God. We, as the church, are helping people see Jesus. But it made me think about a question. What's church? What is church? When you think about church, what do you think about? Do you think about a building? Do you think about like an organization? Do you think about Rancho as this thing? That's my church. Well, I want to look at an interaction that Jesus had with his disciples. And it looks like he kind of moved away from Jerusalem, probably just to 12 of them. And while he was together with them, he asked them this question in Matthew chapter 16. He said this, who do people say the son of man is? Basically, he was asking them, who do they say I am? And the disciples start going, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or another prophet. And then Jesus says this, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him and says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the savior of the world. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus goes on to say, you're right. My father has given you this vision, this reality, helped you see this. And then he says something that I want us to consider. He says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this rock. Now, there's discussion out there. Is on this rock, does it mean Peter? Does it mean Jesus? I believe the rock, the ultimate rock, the cornerstone is Christ on Christ the son of God, the son of the living God, that that's what he's going to build it on. But I want us to pay attention. He says, on this rock, I'm going to build something. And I'm going to build my church in the gates of Hades, which basically means death of the grave, is not going to stop my church from growing and continuing the journey on for now and forevermore. But I'm going to build my church. Now, there's something interesting about that word church. The word church is actually ecclesia, and I, I put it up here. So it's ecclesia, which means an assembly, a gathering, a congregation, a people. Jesus is saying that on this people, on this rock, I'm going to build a people. I'm going to build a congregation. I'm going to get, build an assembly. And then later on in translations of the Bible, they added this German word church. And the German word church means this, the house of the Lord. That's what that means. So it kind of went from this idea of the church being a people to the church being a place. And I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I don't think he meant a place. I don't think he meant the house of the Lord. I think he meant a congregation, an assembly of people. So this is the first thing I want us to realize, I want us to consider, is that Jesus did not predict he would build a place, but an assembly, a congregation, a people. Matter of fact, there was a translator later on in church history that when he was translating that portion of scripture was like, well, church isn't the right word. So he put congregation in there and he was dubbed a heretic. 
church has a lot of power, right? We got to make sure church is in there. We are the power. No, it's putting it into the reality that we are the church, the ecclesia of God, his assembly, his congregation, his people. And I think it's important for us to consider that, that the church was Jesus was talking about, his kingdom here and now on this earth, his people, his assembly, his congregation, that's us. That's what Jesus was going to build. We are part of what Jesus was going to build. And so last week, I want us to think about that again. When Scott said, Jesus is the wide open door to God and the church is the wide open door to Jesus, well, we as individuals make up this worldwide congregation of the church. So as we talked about it, the church has this essential message this message of grace, this never-changing message that we are loved by God through Christ and this never-changing culture of love, loving one another, that we have to understand that that is us. That even though we talk about the church having an essential message that never changes and a culture that never changes, that we are in this congregation that that is lived out and that reality flows. I think First John kind of covers it. I love this passage. This is, the love, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. That's the essential message of the kingdom, the good news, that God loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice. That is the grace, the mercy, the love of God. And then he goes on and he says this, and dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, the culture that should never change. But even though the message says the same of grace and the culture of love never changes, we have, it gets applied into an ever-changing context, right? A context that sometimes changes rapidly and that the church is what we looked at last week, has to have these open doors for all to come and hear the message of grace and experience that culture of love. So, so here's the transition that I just want us to make kind of from last week to this, this week, that we are God's ecclesia. We are his people. We are his church, not the building, not rancho, not an organization, but us so that we are the doors for others to come, taste, and see that the Lord is good and his ways are life-giving in an ever-changing context. It's us. It's our lives. That are those open doors. And I want us to consider this morning the idea, probably what I would say is one of the most important places and relationships to focus on that, which is our families. Husbands, wives, parents, children, siblings, grandparents, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, cousins, it can go on, on and on. These are usually, and I understand not always, I'm just painting a broad stroke, but these are usually the relationships that are, we are the most close to because the closer that family gets, especially husbands, wives, parents, kids, those kind of relationships, it's where you know them the most and they know you the most, right? That's where a lot of the problems come from. It's a lot easier just to get friends at work or at school that don't really know me and now that's my best friend, right? I go home and now they really know me. So, but in reality, that's where the closest friendships develop and the ones that last the longest, pretty much our whole lives in most cases. So let's have a big picture vision here. 
What should our goal in our families be? So I kind of put down a goal here. Our goal within our families should be to put on display the message of grace by living out a culture of love. That's the message. That's the culture. That's the never and not changing. So that should be applied into the context of our families. Now, you might be one that sits there and says, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm the only one in my family. Okay, cool. Then you're the only one with this vision. Still the vision, right? No one else is part of the ecclesia but me. Well, I'm going to keep living that out. That this is the vision. This is the message and the culture that we are to live out. So if the church has a message of grace and a culture of love, that should be our focus. Because we are the church. We are his people, his ecclesia. But within that, we also have to understand that we live in an ever-changing context around us. And our family dynamic is a huge part of that. The family can change so rapidly. The context by which we are applying this is so different now. I mean, back when I was a kid, my dad could so easily have lied to me about anything I asked him, and I would just believe him. Hey, Dad, how's that work? Well, son, it works like this. Oh, wow, my dad's so smart. I tried that with my kids. They just go to that thing called the World Wide Web, and they realize Dad doesn't know what he's talking about. I made it up. Well, I had to act like I knew how a car worked. I don't know how a car works. Put gas in it. You don't have gas, and it doesn't work. That's as far as I go. It's a different culture, isn't it? How many of you remember the beautiful culture we didn't have answering machines or call waiting? Any remember that? How beautiful it was to come home and actually not even know or care if someone tried to call you? It wasn't even in our thoughts. They had to catch us. It was awesome. And now it's like they throw you a text and like two minutes later, where are you? And you're all, dude, chill out. Such a different culture. We live in a different context, but the message of grace and the culture of love is what we're applying into that context. So I I do a lot of counseling, marriage, uh, parents, just different students I've worked with. And I wanna say that I believe that we live in a context in this culture of a high pressured society. Would you agree or disagree? It's a high pressured society that we live in A context where children have this pressure on them to perform. School, sports, church, at home, the list could go on and on. And in most cases, it's pressure put on them by us adults, their parents and coaches and teachers. A guy that I love studying and reading, a guy by the name of Chap Clark, he's an expert on youth from Fuller Seminary, said this, by the time children even successful one, reach high school and middle adolescence, they are aware of the fact that for most of their lives, they have been pushed, prodded, and molded to become a person whose value rests in his or her ability to serve someone else's agenda. That is pretty heavy, isn't it? I know that's a long sentence. Basically what he's saying is that most kids, even successful ones, know by the time they're getting out of high school that basically they have been pushed, prodded, and molded to value stuff that we, our agenda, has prodded them towards, has forced them to apply to themselves. And what about us parents? 
I mean, it's not that easy, right, to be a parent in this, man, to, to make sure you're taking care of your family and jobs and everything that we're facing as well. It's performance-focused for us as well. And, and, and how much is on us as a parent to see our kids or to help our kids succeed, or should I say, to prod and push and mold my kids to become the full potential of what they have to offer, Right? Oh, you have so much potential. I just want to see you live out and have more than me, more success than me, and achieve more than I do. And so we are prodding and we are pushing and we feel the need and the drive to do that. It's hard to separate that. As a matter of fact, as a pastor, I gotta be honest with you, if I can, I've realized over the last few years of how much my ego is attached to the success of my children whether it be scholastically, whether it be sports, or whether it be the things that they believe. The reality that I am pushed and I am, my ego is attached to what my kids are doing. And so my agenda becomes real important. And then there's this crazy thing. No, we shouldn't even talk about it. Okay, we will. <laughs> marriage. Should we even go there? Then we got marriage in the mix, Right? Two people who are trying to put up with each other, figure each other out, express what they want or need, try to juggle all the craziness of this life together as this world throws all the stuff of work, kids, money, mortgage, credit cards, retirement, or lack thereof, if anyone's with me, health issues, and the expectation of someone in my home who often seems to only think about themselves, the other person, of course, not me. So we're wrestling with that. And then we add to that extended family, single older members, divorced couples, stepkids, aging parents, and the list can go on. That's this core reality of family in this high-pressured society. So how can we become an open door in our families that displays the message of grace and experiences and creates the culture of love? Well, I wanted this time together to be like kind of from my heart I don't know it's always from my heart but I didn't want it just to be this message let's just go over here's what the Bible says let's do this so over the last two three days the way I did this is I spent time with my 19 year old son and we spent a lot of time over the last couple of days just talking about this and I was this close to getting him to be up here on stage with me matter of fact last night around four o'clock he was like you are going to be in Marietta right and I go no it's Temecula and he's like excuse me no way. So he's not here. But I can honestly tell you, I can honestly tell you, I tried to push and prod him to tell him, you have a potential, son. Come on, you should do this. But I, I, but I can be honest with you that, that what we're going to talk about stemmed from this time with him. The points and the things that we looked at was about our experience together and the journey that he's been on and the journey that I've been on and the journey we've been on together. So this is from him and, and me. And uh, he was, his real heart was he wants you parents to hear from him and he wants the kids to hear from me. And he just says, man, he knows a lot of kids, has friends, and he usually doesn't see much in the family that's desirable. And so he felt like this is worth it to kind of talk about this and consider this. So here's the first thing that he really kind of, we, we looked at was that considering the interest of each other can open the door to a home of honesty. 
considering the interest of each other can open the door to a home of honesty. That was a big deal for him, honesty. He just doesn't feel like we live in a society where honesty is really celebrated, right? Or you can really be honest, like with who you are. But he feels it's so very important. And to be able to create by having each other, by, by each of us, think of the other person. I don't care if you're a student, a parent, a husband, a wife, that you consider the interest of the other person, not just your own interest. I mean, back in November, we did the creed, right? That was every week we looked at this in Philippians chapter two. It says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So man, it's not always easy though. It's not always easy to consider my wife's interests or my boy's interests. To be honest with you at times, just be honest here. It's a bit scary. It's a bit scary to really pay attention to what they might be truly interested in or how they feel about things or even about how they feel about me. Do do you really wanna know? Do you really wanna ask? Do you really wanna create a place of honesty where we're really thinking about the other person, not just ourselves? And I'm not talking about just the things that I've pushed or prodded them towards, but the things that they're really interested in, the things that they really think. And it's been a journey to get to that place. My son started questioning his Christianity in eighth, ninth grade, questioning Christianity, the claims of Christianity, very honestly and seriously questioning what he's reading, what he's seeing, and everything within me, man, right? You just want to convince. Let's read this. Let's do this. Oh, you're questioning? Cool. Here's things we can look at. Here's things we can read. And it took a while. It took a while for me to realize that talking about Christianity and what he disagrees with wasn't his interest. There was other things he was interested in. Well, I thought because he was denying this or not believing this, well, then he must be interested in this. And I remember one day my older son came to me and goes, you know, Dad, I love talking to you and all the things we talk about, but do you know we always talk about the things you want to talk about, which is faith? I have other things I'm interested in. And it began a journey of me wrestling with reading some things. He sends me articles, looking at YouTube videos, and beginning to say, what are you interested in? The hard thing was is half of it's way over my head when your kids are smarter than you. But I can tell you, over the last three, four, five years, my kids have changed my life. And I've read and watched and considered and listened because I began to hear honest, intellectual, true heart challenges and thoughts. Because you begin to listen about what they're interested in, not just what I'm interested in. And it's been such an enlightening journey together. So powerful. (laughs) It's one of the times it started when it came to interested in what he's interested in. My older son was in seventh grade and uh, I was about to go to retreat and he wanted to listen to Eminem. Hey, Dad, can I download an Eminem album? I'm all, yeah. I'm not saying Eminem's bad. He's pretty good if you're into that. But 
for a seventh grader. And I remember asking him, you know, son, don't you think that someone at your age and kids your age, if they're going to listen to that kind of thematic element and that kind of language, that it's probably not going to be that healthy for you? Let's have a talk about this. And my son said, what do you want me to say, dad? Either I agree with you or you'll tell me how I'm wrong. Seventh grader. And I said, no, I won't. You just did. But I want to tell you, when my kid was in seventh grade, I realized at that moment that I was this close to my son not being honest with me anymore. He was telling me something. I don't listen, and I'm not interested in the things he's interested in. And it was this close. And I want to tell you that that moment, my son is 20 years old, that that moment changed my life. And I've been on a journey now to not be that dad and to consider their interests that they would be honest. And my wife was right over there. If you want to hear about how honest my boys are, <laughs> oh boy. Sometimes it's like, how do we just stop the honesty and just get them to act the way we want them to? when they're in our home and we just forget about what they do elsewhere or what they think, right? Hmm. But this brought up the second point. The second point is accepting each other can help open the door to a home where you can be yourself and feel safe. Accepting each other can open up the door to a home where you can be yourself and feel safe. Man, the more and more I've become convinced that the, one of the main human desires is to feel accepted by who we are. Exactly who we are. And to feel safe within our own skin. It's not easy to find that out there. It's not easy to feel accepted where you are and, and that you can be honest with that. I mean, just a couple days ago in the news, such a sad story of that Olympic gymnast who, I mean, a figure skater who just committed suicide. 32 years old, champion figure skater. Something was going on in his life where it said that he was, got expelled or whatever from this board that he was on. He got released because something going on. He came out to say, no, nothing happened. And then the report was going to come out. And next thing you know, a day later, he kills himself. Something was going to be exposed. Something in his life, he hadn't been accepted in something. I don't know, but we get to these dark places. We live in a culture where we just have to pretend and we don't feel accepted. And how do we change that in our homes somehow so that we can accept each other? I'm talking about spouses and kids and parents. Man, we all need to feel this. There's a book that I love about marriage. It's called This Momentary Marriage. It's by John Piper. And one of my favorite titles of any chapter in history is called Naked and Not Ashamed. It's painting this picture. It's painting a picture of the fall that we find in the book of Genesis. Really, that fall is all of us, man. We've all experienced this. Book of Genesis is about mankind. It's about us. We all experience it. Here's what happens. So in Genesis chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I don't think that it's talking about just physical nakedness. I think they were exposed before each other. Their emotions, who they really are. And they didn't feel any shame. But then look what happens after the fall. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They covered up, up their shame. 
They covered themselves. They all of a sudden went from feeling no shame to feeling shame. Their true self was exposed. Shame is such a powerful, powerful emotion. And I believe it's one that many of us wrestle with because we all know we failed, right? We all know we've failed. We've failed our parents. We've failed our kids. We've failed our spouses. We have failed our teachers and our coworkers. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, we know that. Shame is real. And it can be very, very powerful. But the problem, it's this emotion that we can easily within our homes bring into our homes by degrading each other and expressing our disappointment all the time to one another, talking down to each other and talking down about their thoughts and their ideas and their, desi- and their decisions and their desires, not accepting or forgiving each other. And shame can creep in and can be some, so powerful in our lives. And it all stems from accepting each other. So we have this idea of just feeling accepted for who you really are. Colossians chapter three, I love this passage. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So let's go back to the Genesis, right? Naked and unashamed, becoming shamed because of our fall. And then they're ashamed before God. And now through Christ, God calls us his chosen people, holy and dearly loved. He tells us to clothe ourselves with the things he's clothed us with, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he goes on to say, bear with each other, forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And one of the main teachings of our faith, one of the main teachings of our faith that has moved me to walk and follow Jesus is the reality that we are accepted just as we are by God through Christ. We are chosen, set apart, and dearly loved. And there's nothing we have to do to become, nothing we have to become, nothing we have to change, nothing we have to prove in order to be accepted by God. It's his declaration, it's his work, it's his promise to us. And that is a powerful, life-giving reality. So forgiving and forbearing, basically putting up with each other, accepting each other, forgiving each other, even with, our short, even with our shortcomings and our struggles and our failures is a huge part of learning to accept each other as we've been accepted in and through Christ. And that should be a goal of our family. And as I've walked with my kids and I've walked with my wife and my family and my sister and my mom, I've come to the realization that when it comes to having them feel accepted by me, The burden of trust is kind of on me. I've realized that we live in a different context. Our kids are in a different context. We're in a different world now by which we wanna bring this message of grace and this culture of love. And I realize as your kids start becoming teenagers, there's a real reality where that you need to earn their trust just as much as they earn our trust. And that that changed in me when my kids were like middle school and beginning to question and doubt and wrestle through things. Do they trust me to come to me with anything that I'll really listen and care and be there? I had to earn their trust. No longer is it just like, well, you need to earn my trust 18 year old or else, you know? Man, have I earned theirs? Have I earned my wife's trust? Have I earned people's trust? That's the real reality. 
We, we were at a wedding, my wife and I, and this guy came up to me, and he said, oh, he's, he's uh, an older guy, and he goes, you're, you're a pastor, huh? And I'm like, yeah, and he goes, well, let me ask you something. You have people that want to come talk to you all the time? How do you know if you can trust them? Do you ever wonder if they have an agenda with you or something like that? And I go, I don't need to trust them. He goes, you don't? I don't need to care if they have an agenda with me. I go, the real question is, am I trustworthy? And he said, I've never heard of that before. Got me something to think about and walked away. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Conversation over, right? I mean, I'm the one you guys need to trust, right? If you're going to come to me with life, if my kids are going to come to me with life, I'm the one that needs to be trustworthy. And that kind of shifted in my heart and in my mind. I started seeing things a little bit differently. It's been a huge journey for me to move away from this like, yeah, yeah, I love you and I accept you, but I still need to make sure you know I don't agree with you. You know that? Doesn't it feel good when people say that to you? Interesting thought, but you're wrong. I just need to make sure. Man, my kids know when I disagree with them. I don't have to tell them. My wife knows, right? I don't have to have a little but just so you know. Wow, that's a good thought, but just so you know. That just kills everything. It really does. And that kind of moves us on to this, uh, it's created more negative, you know. So there's been a lot of forgiveness in my failures with this, but it moves on to the final encouragement that I want to bring up is that encouraging each other can open the door to your home, uh, open the door in your home to life and growth, encouraging each other. Because discouragement, putting each other down, oh, I just need to make sure you know I don't agree with that kind of stuff, or showing frustration, or guilting them, or condemning them, or warning them, all these things that we try to do to motivate our spouses and our kids and our parents to fall into our way of thinking, I found to create not much life and growth in the home. It kind of destroys all that. I love Ephesians chapter four. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Hmm. How do we lift each other up? How do we encourage each other? How do we consider the interest of others in our homes and help them feel accepted, forgiven, and loved. I want to tell you that my words are everything when it comes to that. That I could even say all day long that I um, want to hear your interest, and I want to know you're accepted, and I want you to know you're forgiven. But if I speak in a discouraging, negative way, it could either, it will destroy that. What I say either builds up that I really am interested, that I'm really accepting, and that I'm really forgiving and loving or can destroy it. I have realized that in my home, there's nothing I need to watch more carefully than what I say, period. It is the key. If my wife and I are talking about something or my son and I are talking about, it is like this thought, like, okay, what am I going to say? And if I say this, this might happen. If I say this and I think about my words, it is so important. <laughs> it happened to me the other day. I was taking my son back to the bus uh, train station. He was going to go back up to school and he's talking about his degree and what he wants to study. And I know my kid. 
My kid just wants to study stuff. He doesn't care what he's going to do with it. He just wants to study. He want, weird, huh? Like he wants to do these things. So he's talking about what he's going to study this year and his degree and what he's doing and this is what I'm doing. I'm thinking inside myself, don't ask the question. I got to ask the question. Don't ask the question. I'm going to ask the question. This is what's going on in my head. And I asked the question. So, son, what do you think you might do with that? And he just goes, dad, serious? Really, you're going to ask that? I don't know and I don't care. I want to study this because it sounds interesting. And I knew that's what he was. And I knew I shouldn't have asked the question. He doesn't get mad anymore. He just knows. But what are you going to do with it? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so fun. Hmm. All right. So I was talking to a friend of mine just yesterday. He's a buddy of mine that's just so wise and has gone through so much. He's older than me, and I just so appreciate his wisdom. We were talking about these thoughts on family and my discussion with my sons, and he said this, and I'll never forget it, so I want to close with this. He says, wonderful things happen when we love, accept, and encourage each other. And then he said, I can't tell you what they are, but you will experience them. You see, if I'm just going to love, accept, and encourage so my kids or my wife become who I want them to be, like, I'll try this, but what's going to happen? Is it all going to, it's all going to be good, right? And he said, man, what I've learned is that wonderful things will happen. I can't tell you what they are, but you will experience them. I just want to encourage you, in your homes, consider the interest of others above yourself. Accept them as they are. Speak encouraging words into them. And we can start becoming a little more honest with each other, a little bit more safe. And we'll begin to experience life and maybe growth more. There'll be wonderful things that happen. I don't know exactly what those things will be, but you will. Even your own soul, you will experience them. And it could be a beautiful, beautiful thing. I want to close with this last thing. Here we go. Jesus is the open door to God. The church is the open door to Jesus. And our homes are the place where that door should swing open the widest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just how you challenge us as people to see the beauty of your message of grace, that culture of love that you want us to live into, and, and how through the power of your spirit you can challenge us to just Apply that into our families, into our lives, with our spouses, with our kids, with our parents. To create this place where we are considering each other's interests above our own, where we are accepting one another, where we are creating a place of honesty, a place of safety, a place where we can really grow, a place where we speak encouragement to each other and we just don't all have the agendas with each other, but that really our agenda is that the grace of God, that message may be seen and experienced and a culture of love may be lived into. We are your ecclesia. We are your people. Help us to see that this is the vision that you have for us, that your kingdom would be established and grow through us. May it start in our home. May you give us wisdom and the power to live this out, to make some steps maybe in one of these areas and to begin to see life happen. So may your kingdom come and your will be done 
in and through our lives, in and through our families, as is being done in heaven. For your glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.